We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Welcome back to the morning grind. Once again, it's Dean stepping in for Stevie. Stevie, of course, is busy knocking out his NASCAR content. Of course, if you guys want to get his NASCAR content, you know where to get it here at rotogrinders.com. Today, we are continuing our uh, DFS personality series. Of course, not a lot of the major sports going on just just yet. So, uh, hey, let's talk to some people in the DFS sports world, uh, the sports world in general. This next person needs an introduction. We'll give an introduction anyway. Uh, The creator, the curator of the Blitz. Uh, the bat, uh, they've done studies, you know, it works 60% of the time, every time he's kind of a big deal. It's Derek Cardi. What's going on, Cardi? I'm, uh, I'm doing good, except that I think you just quoted Anchorman, which is a big <laughs> no-no, but uh, I mean, you know, I guess we're throwing ourselves right back into the fire. Yeah, I wasn't sure if you'd pick up on that or not, and that was producer Devin's idea. I knew I had to needle you about Anchorman and right off the bat, uh, you know, maybe it might be a theme throughout the podcast, who knows, but uh, you're known for the bat. You're known for the blitz. You're known for having hot takes. And one of your hot takes, of course, Cardi, is a uh, is you know you don't like Anchorman, which is just egregious, and you're just you're just wrong. Take the L on that one. I mean, I'm not. It's egregious <laughs> to think Anchorman is a good movie in any sense of the word. It's not funny or good at all. Unbelievable. We'll get into it. We'll probably we're gonna put that one on pause. Uh, you're also known for your hair. Unfortunately, we're not. We don't get to see your hair. There's no video today. A lot of these that we've done are up on the YouTube feed as well at rotorgunners.com. 
We've talked to Head Chopper and Beer Makers fan and Emac and Ricky Sanders and Roth and Eddie Fear and a whole slew of people. You, uh, they're basically evergreens. You go ahead and check those out. Of course, we're also on the podcast feed. You guys are listening to us today as far as all the uh, past episodes as well. Carney, uh, yeah, you're done for baseball. Is, is baseball happening? Is that going to be what, what's – I mean, I, I've, uh, I'm just tilting, sort of paying attention as far as if it's going to go, what's not going to go, and you know, millionaires and billionaires squabbling. And it's not a conversation I want to get delved too far into. And let me know when something's happening or something's not happening. What, 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 is the, what does the bat say? Are we going to play baseball at some point? It's, it's a mess. I would like to say yes. Um, I think eventually, probably in the next few days, owners and players will wind up coming to an agreement and agreeing that they can play. And then it's going to, whether we actually play, I think it's going to actually be determined by, by the coronavirus, how good the measures they have in place are, how, how much as a country we can kind of get this a little more under control and make it, you know, actually feasible to play baseball games. And, and that I'm, less optimistic about, I guess, but you know, um, you know, we'll see, we'll see. Um, I think there's, there's definitely a, I think a good chance we get some baseball in, um, you know, but there's obviously, you know, I'm a probability math guy. I think there's also a chance that, that we don't. So I'm just trying, trying to stay optimistic, trying to think it's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the coronavirus, of course, I think well, at least bantied about like two of the big bases, as far as a lot of stadiums in Arizona and Florida and currently, those states, uh, there a lot of cases are breaking out. So it's kind of a two-pronged deal where they have to get a deal and then they have to make it safe as well, which, uh, you know, and the clock is ticking also, um, you know, but we shall see. If it's a 50 or 60 game season, is it like, is it just, is there an asterisk now necessary? Would it be like a real, would we have a real champion? Is that too small of a sample size? Obviously 162 is what you play throughout the year. And I would guess they're probably going to expand the playoffs as well because, well, there's money in that too. Uh, do we have a real champion if we play theoretically, you know, 55, 60 games? I think there's going to be a lot of people who are going to try to put that asterisk, who are going to say that it's not, not a real season. And, and it is a fairly small sample size. They wouldn't necessarily be wrong to do it, but you know, it is what it is. Like it's where we're at right now. So any baseball at all, I'm going to be thrilled. with. If we play 60 baseball games this year, plus playoffs, I'm going to be extremely happy. And I think baseball fans and DFS players should be also. Should say it's worth noting we're recording this on a Monday afternoon. So it's possible by the time this airs, like things may change because I think there's actually some sort of meetings later on today and maybe it's nothing. Maybe something actually happens. Who knows? Uh, I guess you're not staying up like the four five o'clock, six o'clock in the morning and watching the KBO or the Japanese baseball is not, not your thing right now. I couldn't do it when it, when it first, uh, you know, came out that KBO was going to be coming back. Like I thought about it. I'm like, should I build the bat for KBO? You know, I looked into, you know, what it would take to do it, where I could get the, the data from and everything that I would need. And, and I really, I, I did the research. I was like, okay, I can either put this time into building a KBO system where it's going to be very temporary because as soon as MLB comes back, no one's going to care about KBO anymore. All the work I put into KBO is going to be for nothing. Um, and we're not even sure at that point, you know, how popular KBO is going to be because it's Korean baseball. You have to get up in the middle of the night to do it. Um, I was like, you know, it's probably just a better use of my time to continue working on permanent upgrades for the bat and the blitz as opposed to, you know, a temporary thing. So that's kind of the direction I went with it. I haven't played any KBO. Um, and if we get MLB back, um, you know, I think that's probably the right decision. So hopefully that's what happens. What sort of modifications? I saw you tweeting about it. Well, what do you have as far as, uh, you know, if, theoretically, if there is a season, what do we have to look forward to as far as the bat? Yeah, so I've been making some, some major upgrades to the bat. I rolled out the first of them 
um, about a week or two ago. It's basically actually an entirely new projection system. It's called the BAT-X or the BAT-Experimental. And it is the biggest upgrade to the BAT since I added weather to the BAT probably like four or five years ago. It's, it's huge. It uses StatCast data. So previously, the BAT mostly just used traditional stats. And, you know, you'd have a lot of people in chat, you know, on, on Grinders Live or, or, or whoever, like talking about, well, you know, projections aren't good for this player because his barrel rate is really good over the last couple of weeks or his exit velocity is up this year or something like that. And that's not something that the bat had taken into account previously. Um, and now it does. Now the bat X fully incorporates stat cast data, um, which is really cool. You know, I, I spent, you know, several weeks studying, you know, hundreds of variables, figuring out what was predictive, what was, um, you know, maybe not as predictive, uh, and, and so that's what the bat X is. So people who are subscribed to the bat or who subscribe to the bat, you know, once uh, we get an official season on the books, they're going to be able to access both systems, kind of the tried and true version of the bat that, you know, they've always used and done well with. And this new version that should theoretically be even better. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, I, I think it's kind of awesome. Or as long as you can remember middle school, high school, were you always a fan of both like sports and math? Yeah, I was. I mean, I played basketball in, in high school. I was always a straight A student. I always loved math. And so um, when I first read Moneyball was when I first realized that math and sports could go together. And I was like, this is really cool. And, and that was kind of like, you know, the jumping off point for me with that. Wait, so you play basketball? You, you didn't play baseball? Was basketball your featured sport? I know you're sneaky tall. I got some people, don't, people don't know this. You're what, 6'3"? Is that, is that about right? Yeah, it's about right. Yeah. Who's your comp? Do you have an NBA comp as far as your basketball game? Um, <laughs> it's not your sport, right? I think you're more of a basketball football more it's of a baseball football sport. guy. That's the thing. Yeah. Like, uh, I can't, I mean, I don't even follow enough NBA to have a comp. But as a um, math guy, I, you have to love the three, right? What's that? The three pointer as a math guy, you got to love three pointers. Three, three is greater than two. I can do that math in my head. So it's, it's funny because I struggle with it because like growing up, obviously when I was playing basketball, like the analytics weren't that far advanced. I obviously knew nothing about them. I was like a very like fundamental player, like, you know, like take your little, like, you know, elbow jump shots and stuff like that. And obviously that that's completely the wrong way to play basketball now. Um, but growing up, that is how I played. Um, I like to pass the ball. I like to drive. Um, and, uh, obviously threes now are, uh, are the way to really do it. But uh, yeah. Did you try to play baseball? Or are you not a very good baseball player? Um, I wasn't great at baseball. I was pretty good defensively, um, but I couldn't really hit very well. Um, and I like basketball better anyway. So basketball was, was the way I went. What was, what was your position in baseball? I like playing shortstop the best. Oh, wow. There you, that's a tricky, that's a tricky position. You're, I guess you're a righty. You have to get righty. But, I, I was a righty. I was basically like rare donuts, you know, like <laughs> play some defense, couldn't hit a lick and uh, it just wasn't really worth pursuing. <laughs> you could drop a sacrifice bunt if needed, that kind of thing. Maybe yeah, move the runner for a second for a hit maybe, but yeah, that was about it. Hey, you know, batting eighth, rare donuts had a good career. Good for him. Um, is that, is that your team, by the way? You're, uh, you're from New Jersey, correct? From Jersey, yeah, I grew up a Mets fan. The the more, the older I get, the more disillusioned I get with the Mets. They're just not a good team to root for. Um, but it is what it is, I suppose. Being in fantasy makes it a lot easier to be a Mets fan because when the Mets suck, it doesn't matter. I'm 
probably rostering pitchers against them anyway. <laughs> the uh, the rumors of J-Lo and A-Rod considering buying the Mets, so that's got to excite you, I'm sure. Not really. I mean, <laughs> have, you, have you seen A-Rod, like, do broadcasts? He's not the most analytically driven guy. Him running my team is not something that I'd be super thrilled about, although the current ownership is disastrous also. So, I mean, anything really is probably an upgrade there. On, a, on ESPN during the playoff games, it was at ESPN and TBS as well. I think both, they would run like two different feeds, like the analytical feed and the non-analytical feed. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. That was, a, who's, who's the guy that does the analytical feed? He was excellent. I'm just, I'm Mike something maybe? I'm forgetting uh, Was it Petriello who did it? I think so, yeah. I just, uh, yeah. I, I try to get people to watch that feed as opposed to like, you know, because I'm tired. I'm sure you're tired of like telling people about like, I don't know, like RBIs don't matter. It's like, you know, it's, I still have people coming at me on Twitter, like asking me why RBIs aren't a good measure for, for players or trying to tell me that, you know, whoever Bryce Harper is bad because he doesn't get enough RBIs. And it's like, God, come on. Like, like we are well beyond our RBIs worthwhile. They're not spoiler alert. They're not, they never have been. We've known it for like 30 years now. Like, get with the times. I, I blame the broadcast, though. I blame the booth because the booth has trained the audience to think. Like, you know, the stat line for years, obviously, they've expanded, expanded on it, but the stat line for years is batting average, home run, RBI, stolen bases, and it doesn't stress any of the, the analytical stuff. And yet they've expanded upon it, like, recently. But that's just what it is. The audience has to be, they got to be retrained, right? Is that the problem? That's exactly it. And I think I think some of them maybe don't want to be retrained because they've, they've known it their whole lives. They have that like, you know, old school fundamental kind of, you know, view of the game, which, which in a lot of ways has been proven wrong by the analytics, but uh, you know, the younger generation, especially, you know, who are you know, first starting to tune into baseball broadcasts. Like we kind of want to indoctrinate them into thinking about it intelligently. Yeah. Well, I, you were at the, you were at baseball tonight. I assume you try to push this agenda to, to some extent if possible, or you may, mainly just focus on just fantasy numbers and fantasy stats. Yeah. I mean, I've always been a, a stats guy when I was at baseball tonight. I, you know, I'd have a lot of really good conversations because it was mostly, it was me. It was, you know, the hosts, you know, a guy like Carl Ravitch and then it was former players as the other analysts for the most part. Um, and so it was really interesting kind of having those types of conversations with people because they obviously approach the game very differently than I do um, in some ways. And then in other ways, they were, for the most part, they were all very open-minded about analytical stuff and, you know, kind of thinking about things in different ways. And obviously there's a lot that I learned from them as well about, you know, the, the scouting side or the player development side, or like, you know, that kind of, you know, the fundament, fundamental aspects of the game. Yeah. I'm trying to think who you must have, did you work with Crook? Um, I worked with Cruck a little bit. Um, I worked with Schilling um, a good amount. Alex Cora when he was there. Uh, Eduardo Perez, who I guess is doing most of the KBO stuff now. I worked with yeah. him a lot. He was great. Um, Tim Kirchin was on a lot. He's he's fantastic. I loved him. He must um, love his. He loves his stats. He's a total like a uh, numbers geek, right? And I say geek in the highest possible regard. Yeah. No. Tim. Tim is like the nicest, nicest guy. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, that. That sort of checks out. That makes sense. Uh, and, and the older players, or the, the former players, like how, uh, like what did you learn from them? Did, did, did something like BBP ever come up? Yeah, we definitely talk about BBP. You know, some of the guys <laughs> would say, you know, well, like I, you know, I always thought I really had this guy's number really well. And, you know, you're not going to be like disrespectful and be like, BBP <laughs> is 
fake. You're stupid for thinking it. Um, <laughs> you got to face that guy 10,000 times before you can make yeah, a definitive but you statement. Try to have an, you, know, uh, you try to have an intelligent conversation. You kind of try to you know, explain why the math says one thing, and then they try to explain why you know, maybe the math is mi- missing this or something like that. And a lot of it comes down to, you know, sometimes they'll be like, well, you know, I really thought I had this guy's number because of this thing that the numbers can't capture. And I think that type of thing is probably very real. The, the big issue with BVP, obviously, is that the, the average layperson, you know, the average fantasy player is just looking at the numbers. They're just seeing this guy is 10 for 20 in his career against this pitcher without knowing any of the context of it. And, and that is where, you know, it's really bad to look at BVP. But if there's little nuances and stuff, um, then, then maybe you're adding some value that, that we don't get in the public sphere. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but like your anti-BVP take would basically be like, yes, it, it is a thing, but you never know what it is and you never know what it isn't. So it's basically worthless because you can't, you don't know when to quantify it and when not to, essentially is, is the thought process. Right. Like it, it's probably real in some cases, but the sample sizes that we're dealing with are so small that you're going to have a few, a few legitimate cases mixed in with like 10 times as many cases that just happen randomly because that's what's going to happen over 10 or 20 or 30 at bats like some guys are just going to do it randomly and you're not going to be able to tell which ones are real and which ones aren't and so unless you have extra data you are going to be more accurate by just assuming that bvp is fake yeah i like to look at the exit velocity stuff and sometimes you'll see a guy uh is four for 20 but his average exit velocity off of, off the same pitcher is four for 20 against is like 96 miles per hour and i'm like well that's probably he's probably hitting the ball really hard just at the wrong places and uh you know, if you believe in BBP, you should say four for 20 is completely misleading, you know, and I'm sure there's the inverse is correct as well, too, where somebody's like five for 12 and their, you know, average exit velocity is like 82 miles per hour. They just get some bloopers and some bleeders and some dribblers and, you know, and you got to get a dig in this stuff and you, there's only so many hours in the day. And yeah, uh, it, I'm with you on that, but like, I do agree. It's, it's something, uh, it's something I look at and uh, sometimes the data can be misleading, I suppose. Yeah, that, that, that's the main thing. The data is misleading. You can't, you can't tell what's real and what isn't just from the data. How did you get the gig at baseball tonight? Was ESPN trying to embrace uh, fantasy at the time, I suppose, or just more analytical yeah, stuff? Um, yeah, that was, I'd been doing DFS for, for a couple years and doing really well. The bat had just launched the year before. Um, I, uh, I had some friends at ESPN. Um, you know, I did, I went up there, did a whole bunch of interviews and everything. Um, they were really trying to get into the DFS space because that was when DraftKings and FanDuel were like really like on the upswing. Um, it was like the year before all the, um, what's his name? Ethan. Uh, Ethan Haskell. Yeah. Ethan Haskell, all that stuff happened. Um, and then people really kind of started to sour a little more on DFS, but it was like right when, when DFS was like exploding and they wanted to get into it and they wanted to do stuff on TV and on the website and on podcasts and everything else. Um, so I was doing a lot of that stuff with them at the time. Yeah. Uh, and as far as uh, high school, when did you know this could be a job, like just talking sports and, and how did you get into it? Like how does one become uh, what you became? I think I took kind of, I guess maybe a more, uh, I don't know, indirect path, path than most, but like I, uh, I was in high school, I was playing fantasy sports with my friends. I was losing all the time. And I was like, wow. <laughs> Why do I keep losing? Like I'm looking at RBIs and last year, this guy had 90 RBIs, but this year he only had 50. Like, why am I not? What, like, how do I do this? Um, 
And my one friend uh, who always won, I'm like, why do you always win? Like, what are you doing that I'm not doing? Um, and he gave me Moneyball. He gave me the, you know, the book by, by Michael Lewis that became the movie with Brad Pitt. Um, and, and I read it. And I'm like, oh, like you can apply math to sports and like do better than just like trying to know sports, whatever that means. Um, so I, I put up like a little blog um, with, you know, I, after I read the book, I started like running my own numbers and doing stuff like that. Um, reading, you know, different websites that were out there, sabermetric sites. And I put up my own little blog um, and it got picked up or it got noticed very quickly by, by the Hardball Times, which is like the, I, I think it actually got shut down this year, which is sad, but it's like the, the really like hardcore stat side, the analytical side of fan graphs um, for a while. Um, and they were starting a fantasy section or they, they wanted me to start it for them. And I was like, okay, this is fantastic. Like this is my favorite site at the time. So I ran their fantasy section for, for, for a few years. Um, I moved on to baseball prospectus and ran their fantasy section for a few years. I started doing um, stuff with, uh, with various other outlets, with Roto World, with Sports Illustrated, you know, little stuff like that. Um, I started building the bat um, in college. Um, as my senior, senior thesis, I wanted to build my own projection system. So I started building the bat. Um, and then DFS kind of came around. And I was like, this, this sounds like a lot of fun. This sounds like a really good challenge. Cause when you're projecting season long projections, there's a lot of things that kind of wash out over the course of the season, you know, the, the, the umpires, the weather, stuff like that. But in DFS, there's so many additional factors that you can incorporate and analyze and factor in. And I was like, this sounds like a lot of fun. You know, at the time there was nobody doing projections. I was like, there's clearly going to be a market for this. This sounds like a game that's going to take off. It's going to be fun. People are going to be into it and people are going to want to be good at it. So like, I want to build projections to, to do that. So, you know, I spent a few years building, building the bat. Um, you know, I wound up with fantasy insiders who is now a part of Roto grinders. Um, after my first year there, I, uh, you know, I made my connections with ESPN did baseball tonight. Um, then the next year I joined Roto Grinders, started doing Grinders Live, the flagship with Dean78904 and exactly. the like. And, uh, and uh, it's, you know, the rest is kind of history. Then I jumped into football and did the Blitz, and it's been, it's been, been great, you know. You just ran down your entire resume off the dome. That was pretty impressive. That was uh, that's a lot going on there. Well, what did your, what did your uh, college professor think of your thesis paper? Did they care? I mean, I, I imagine this is somebody that – this is probably something you made your numbers, statistics. What, what, was, what was your major? Uh, I was actually a business major. Um, oh, okay. Because, yeah, I mean, going into to college, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't think I was going to be a fantasy baseball analyst. I don't think a lot of people, especially at the time, that wasn't really like a job. There were very few people <laughs> doing that for a living. Yeah. And so, uh, and so I did business because I'm like, this is kind of generic. Like, it'll serve me in a lot of different fields. I can kind of do, you know, various things with it. Um, and I'll kind of see how things go as I, as I go through school and what happens when I come out. By the time I came out, I had been, you know, doing fantasy stuff for four years and, and it seemed like a potentially viable career path. So, so I pursued that for a little while. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty awesome to be able to do fantasy sports for a living. It definitely beats digging ditches for sure. Well, what, uh, where, where'd you go? Where, where'd you go to school? I went to a little school in New Jersey, uh, Monmouth University. Uh, um, I think they're probably best known in the sports world. A couple years back um, when they were in like the NCAA tournament and stuff like that, they had like the bench that did like all the, the crazy things. Like, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that, that's where I went to school. There you go. The Monmouth, I just, a quick Google, I did not notice off the dome. The Monmouth Hawks, I was not aware of that. The, 
Shout out to the mom of pox. There you go. Represent. <laughs> uh, did you ever have like a terrible job or like it's not all your jobs, basically baseball? Did you like deliver newspapers or pizzas or like, uh, you know, do something miserable for a few months, maybe some telemarketing or something? I mean, I had jobs in, in high school. Um, you know, I, I scooped ice cream for a summer. Um, I would uh, coach it like basketball camps and basketball leagues, um, you know, like youth basketball, um, you know, rec programs, that kind of thing. But for the most part, you know, I, I had uh, I had full scholarships for most of college. So when I came out, I didn't have to get like a real job to like pay off like exorbitant loans. I could kind of make a small amount of money trying to build up to making a lot of money and, and making, you know, fantasy sports a real thing for me. Um, so I kind of had that luxury and that's, that's what I focused on after, after college. I didn't get the, you know, quote unquote real job. Well, what was Cardi like in college? Um, he was very shy and introverted the first couple of years. And then by the end, he was the, the cool, handsome, suave playboy you know today. <laughs> we're, depriving, we're depriving our YouTube viewers of seeing the cool, handsome. Unfortunately, like you can't show off your hair system, which I don't know. Is the hair system still a thing? Are you still applying? A, you have all your juices and berries and whatever you sort of put in there to get that great concoction of uh, lovely hair that you, uh, you show off these days. But uh, I, I guess we, we, uh, we haven't had a haircut in a while. Is that what's going on? Yeah, the hair system's on the fritz a little bit. Haven't had a haircut since February. So uh, the hair is a little <laughs> out of control. But, um, you know, I'm, uh, hopefully at some point I will be able to get it back, back on track. <laughs> you've spoken about the hair system before. I don't, you've, you've gone into great detail about it. I don't know if, uh, if you can get, what are the cliff notes? Like, what, what do we throw in there to make, uh, make it so lovely? I mean, we've, I think we've talked about it before. I, I <laughs> do uh, this, like, custom shampoo brand. Like, you tell them uh, what your hair goals are, basically, and they'll, they'll customize shampoo for you to meet to meet your hair goals. So you get shampoo and conditioner. Um, then, uh, you know, that, that's still like, keep it, keep it in good shape, you know, constantly. And then, you know, a little bit of styling, you know, you comb it or a little or brush it a little bit, throw in a little bit of, a little bit of mousse, a little bit of hairspray. Um, it actually takes much. It, it doesn't take very long. It takes like two minutes to like do my hair of a given day. Yeah. I mean, I, you're not going to believe this, Cardi, but I've never actually written down pen to paper my hair goals. <laughs> That's just something I've never No, you don't have specific hair goals, dude? <laughs> I don't. Just, like, keep growing. Like, just don't go bald on me. It's, <laughs> thankfully, we were still growing. It's not an issue. But, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe I have to reprioritize things in my life. Maybe I'm just doing it wrong. I have no idea. Did you see Did you see that thread of, like, uh, of uh, you know, what, what they've been, like, making – DFS players or just like famous players or athletes and they turning them into women. Are you aware of this? Yeah, I've seen this. Did you pop up on this? I don't know. I've seen, I've seen many DFS people. I don't know if I saw you pop up in there or not. I don't no, think I, I did. I haven't seen one of me yet. I don't know how you do it. I'd be very <laughs> curious though. <laughs> so yeah, like they think some of them are athletes as well too. It's pretty interesting. You got to do a double take and like, you know, it's, okay, this is, it's an interesting, you know, technology these days, Cardi. They, they, they can do anything pretty much. Um, Tell me this. Uh, how, I, I want to get into the, into the uh, fantasy baseball DFS industry. How do I go about doing it? Obviously, it's a little trickier in 2020, but if there's any piece of advice, somebody out there listening, and they want to crack into the industry, what, what do you suggest? Yeah, I get this question a lot from people. Um, the first thing I tell them is make sure you really want to do this because <laughs> it is 2020 now. Competition is fierce. There are a lot of people who want to get into doing this. And you definitely can't half-ass it. If you're going to do it, you have to do it. Like you have to give it everything you have because the competition is so fierce and you have to realize that you're probably going to have to, you know, pay your dues a little bit, I guess. Like you're probably not going to be making a lot of money 
right away unless you, you fall into a really good gig. Like you'll probably have to work for quote unquote exposure or whatever. Um, you'll have to put in a lot of time um, and really kind of make a name for yourself. And, and in terms of that, you know, making a name for yourself, I think that's the part that people are really more interested in is the biggest piece of advice I can give is to find a niche, to find something that's going to set you apart because there's so many people doing this. Like what is going to, why are people going to want to listen to what you have to say relative to everyone who's already doing it? Like what is going to make you different and better? And, and that's the main thing that I think people struggle with because there's a lot of people doing the same general thing and the people that are, are successful are, are doing something different are doing something really well, doing something better, doing something that other people aren't. That's a great piece of advice. Uh, how do you balance, uh, you know, doing content, DFS content, season-long content, uh, DFS especially when it comes to time, and as far as actually playing? How do you balance those two things? Yeah, I think my my balance is probably different than some people, but for me, the the content is is the thing I I prioritize of the two. I try to play as much as possible during football. It's a lot easier than than baseball, where it's every day where you're doing it you know, a lot of times we do crunch time where the show is running through lock. Um, and, and the main thing is that I, I feel a very, um, I take very seriously, like the, uh, I'm trying to find the right word, like the, uh, responsibility, I guess I have to my subscribers, you know, people are paying me for the bat. They're paying me for, for information, for projections, for advice. And, they're my priority. I want to make sure that everyone who is subscribing is having a good experience, is getting their questions answered, is understanding the products, is doing well. And then once I'm sure that everyone is, is you know, taken care of, of a given day, then I'm focusing on, on myself and my own play. So, you know, for me, I'd like to play more, you know, at some point, you know, maybe I will be able to, but, you know, you have a certain amount of time of a given day. You have, you know, crunch before lock. And, and all, most of my attention, you know, the, my attention first and foremost goes to subscribers. You meet somebody at a dinner party. They ask what you do for a living. What's your answer? It depends what kind of dinner party. It depends who the person is. Um, a lot of times I'll just say, uh, you know, I'm a sports analyst or I'm a sports writer or something like that. Sometimes I'll say, you know, I'm a fantasy sports writer. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and then I kind of let them ask the follow-up questions and see how detailed of an answer they really want. Some people are just like, oh, that, that's cool. Um, and a lot of times, you know, men in particular, it seems like, are like, oh my God, that's awesome. How do you get a job like that? I want to do that. What do you do? And then, then you talk about it more because um, it is a really cool job. Um, but, but uh, you know, you don't want to be like bragging or like whatever. People are either really interested or not interested at all. Like, oh man, I should not have asked that question. Like I went out in this as fast as possible. Or like you said, some people are like, wait, tell I got to learn more about this. What's, what's going on? What am I missing out on? Yeah, How do that, I get that's exactly it. It's kind of one or the other. There's very little middle ground. Uh, all right. Uh, let's, uh, let's move on. Oh, trolls. I got to talk to you about trolls and talk to you about oh, Twitter, of course. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is like, I, this question is right up your alley. Uh, like I, I'm trying to think like the greatest mean tweet you ever got. Like, is there something that comes off the top of your head, something you can remember? And you actually, you engage in them. Like a lot of people just put them on mute. A lot of people block them. And maybe you do that as well too. I don't know. But from what I see, you're happy to engage and like, you will go back and forth and keep explaining your points and you're, you're super patient despite, 
no matter how ridiculous something they may or may not say, you're just going to go with it and, you know, keep on, on point, on task. And uh, how, how do we go about doing that? Because I, I have a hard time, uh, you know, when somebody, I, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll clarify my point and then just kind of move on, but you just, you keep going. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fun. I mean, this is what I do for a living. I like talking about this stuff. I like doing it. And it kind of ties back to what I said before about like feeling a responsibility to subscribers. Like a big part of my job, I feel like, is is to to teach, you know, and, and I'm not saying I know everything, but I think there are a lot of things that I'm pretty good at and know a lot about. And so I'm happy to to try to help people. You know, if someone just right off the bat is just a complete asshole, then I might take a different, you know, a different approach with them. But if someone is asking a question and it seems like maybe they are just like, you know, just ignorant about something or they just don't know, you know, I'll try to explain it to them. Um, I'll try to, you know, try to teach or try to, you know, get my point across. Um, and then- Is there any particular I, tweets that sort of stand out as being uh, particularly egregious or particularly harsh or anything you sort of remember? Like, is there one tweet you kind of always recall? Like, yeah, that was, somebody just went right at me for that one. Or it's just, it's all sort of like, you know, mucked together in the same bucket it kind of blurs together because there are a lot of mean ones. There are a lot of ones that, that people are not expecting a real response to. And so how you approach that is always very different. Sometimes, sometimes I'll respond and be snarky or sometimes I'll, I'll respond and like, try to, I don't know, like, like kind of tell them that they're wrong in like a, a semi mean spirited way, just because they're an asshole. Um, and sometimes I'll ignore it. Um, I'm trying to think of, so last year, Fernando Tatis. Um, oh yeah. You were wrong about this one. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was Good wrong, wrong about Tatis. Every projection system was wrong about Tatis. Every system thought he was not going to be very good right away because a lot of rookies, especially ones who have, you know, mediocre minor league track records the way Tatis did, um, you know, they, they're not very good right away. And so I was basically just like temper expectations on Tatis, guys. He might not be great right away. And then when he was great, and he did get very lucky last year, but he was way better than we expected, um, people uh, – People really were not happy about that. Usually Padres fans who like didn't understand the fantasy angle of it or didn't understand like how prospects work. Um, you know, there was a picture going around of like, I think it was like Tatis holding like a baby with like my face on the baby. That was pretty funny. <laughs> I did um, not see that. <laughs> so yeah, there was a lot of that. Um, that was the, I think the main kind of trolling thing that sticks out for me last year. But like your general thought of prospects are generally overrated and you're probably right. I'm just throwing out a number when you put your, your, your projections, maybe 80% of the time and 20% of the time is going to be outliers like Tatis. And nobody wants to sit there and say like, Hey, Cardi was right about this guy. who's not as good. Like, that's not fun. I don't want to tweet you about that. I want to tweet you about Tatis, which you're wrong about. Look how good Tatis is. That, that's exactly it. And when you look at all prospects, even, even elite prospects like Tatis, who was, you know, a top two or three prospect on basically every prospect list, you look at those guys and most of them do not do what Tatis did. They do not do what Ronald Acuna did the year before. You know, they do what Byron Buxton did. They do what Dansby Swanson did, you know, that kind of thing. They do what Yohan Moncada did his first year. Like most prospects, even elite ones are, you know, kind of mediocre right off the bat. Um, and then you have your outliers and people get upset about the outliers, but you can't, figure out which ones are which ahead of time. Like these are all elite prospects. These are all guys that are expected to do really well. You know, maybe 80 of them, 80% of them are not and 20% are, and I'm okay being wrong 20% of the time to be right 80% of the time. And that's something that people kind of, it seems like miss, especially trolls. They like to focus on every, 
every instance in an individual sense in a vacuum. It doesn't matter if you were right about the other nine guys that you projected, if the one, the one out of the 10 that you projected was wrong. You're only as good as your last projection, Cardi. That's, that's how that works. <laughs> uh, and you, you went to scout school. Is that like a, is that a concept you're applying to that? Is that sort of like something they teach you there or just kind of understand, uh, you know, upside and downside, but also keeping a reality check and not getting too excited, despite the fact that certain guys are getting super hyped up. And I'm sure a lot of this is pertaining to, I'm guessing, average draft position and people love the shiny new toy. So, you know, Tatis is exciting and fun. We don't need, he's, he's what's behind door number three. We don't know what he is. He's a mystery box. And that's exciting because he could be the greatest player of all time. In theory, I suppose that's in the realm of possibilities. Uh, I'm rambling, but is this, does any of this sort of grasp what kind of what you're saying? Yeah, that, that's a, that's very much it. You know, you go to you know, I went to scout school, so I know that side of it. And, and it's not like scouts are talking with more certainty than the stats guys are. It's not like they're like, this guy is absolutely going to be a major league all-star his first season. Like they never say that. Like, they, they put, uh, you know, they put grades on everything, but like the final grades, there's a present grade and there's a future grade. And they like to talk about, you know, upside and dreaming on a player and what a player could be. But a lot of times the present grade is telling us something very similar to what the statistical projection is telling us that this guy at present is, is pretty good. And in the future, he's going to be really good or he could be really good. Um, but uh, people just don't, they just don't want to believe that that's a thing. Like they just want to think that their top prospects are going to be incredible right away, even though history shows us that's not always the case. Yeah. And it's worth clarifying. It's not like you're rooting against these guys. You don't want Fernando Tatis to fail. Uh, You're just trying, you're just trying to be realistic and have a realistic approach. And you don't hate, like you said, the Padre fans like, Oh, you hate the Padres. And I'm sure at some point Yankee fans said you hate their team and twins fans say you hate their team based based, based on some sort of take you may have. And, is there any teams you actually hate or you just, you know, I assume you have sort of a, especially when it comes to math and stats, you, you take that out of it, I would imagine. Yeah, there's none that, that I hate. You know, I, I try to be objective about every team and every player. And the funny thing with the Padres was everyone focused on the Tatis thing, uh, even the Padres fans. But I was also very vocal about Chris Paddock at the start of the year in the preseason the bat had Chris Paddock as a top 20 pitcher in baseball before he threw an inning above like double a, and that is an extremely bold take for a rookie. Um, And, and the bat wound up being right that Chris Paddock was very, very good. And Padres fans, they just ignored that because I also said that Fernando Tatis might not be very good. So it's, it's funny kind of how, how fans and trolls and Twitter tends to focus on, on a certain type of thing and ignore others. (laughs) Let's touch on this briefly because I saw you tweeting about like certain guys coming into this year. And uh, I had a couple of thoughts. You mentioned Paddock and Paddock of course was awesome last year. He's also a guy that they didn't push too hard. That Paddock's not a guy they want to throw 200 innings, especially in a lost year for San Diego. But uh, theoretically, again, <laughs> under the assumption there is a season we're playing 60 or so games, something like that. Does a, who does a shortened season help? Because in my brain, it helps a guy like Paddock who's not going to be held back the same way he would be held back in a 162 inning season. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think it helps a guy like Paddock. I think it helps a guy like Lance McCullers, who I love, who is going to mm-hmm. be limited to, you know, 120 innings and relative to other pitchers, you know, especially if we're talking about like season long fantasy, um, you know, wasn't going to have as much value as a guy who's similarly talented, who's going to throw 200 innings. But now if everyone's only throwing like a hundred innings, then, then it's, you know, a much more level playing field. I think the more, 
the more complex part of that is what's going to happen with a shorter season with probably expanded rosters. Mm -hmm. How deep are these pitchers going to be allowed to go into games? Like, I think we're going to see much more than we've ever seen before. Sometimes, you know, pitchers getting the, the Dave Roberts treatment, getting the extreme Dave Roberts treatment where they go one time through the order and then they're pulled from the game and fantasy players are going to lose their minds when that happens. Um, but I think that's going to wind up happening, especially to, you know, the, the non aces. I think we're going to see pitchers pulled a lot more, um, a lot earlier in the game. That's actually a good segue into one of the tweets you have that I take full umbrage in. you talk about the Dave Roberts treatment. The Dave Roberts treatment is also – your pitcher getting pinch hit for like in the fifth or sixth inning when it's their chance to hit. Uh, you tweeted out uh, you wanted to vomit at the thought of the DH hitting in the National League. How dare you? You, you are pro watching pitchers hit over like sluggers, like big hackers. How, I mean, how are you anti offense? It's not that I'm anti offense. I'm pro DFS edge. I'm pro uh, having some sort of competitive advantage. If you know, right now there is a difference between a pitcher in the in the American League who's you know in an away game in in San Francisco or in Miami or in New York, you know, not having to face the DH, getting the pitch in a pitcher's park, getting to face the Mets or the Marlins or whatever. Um, and I think if everyone is if everyone's using a DH, then there's no um, you don't have to make any sort of mathematical adjustment. There's no translation factors. There's no anything like that. And that's one fewer thing to, you know, get an edge on the competition. Okay. So I completely misread that tweet. And I, I get that point as far as giving up the edge. I was, th- I was thinking from the perspective of a fan, uh, like I don't want to see Justin Verlander hit. Like I have no one, maybe Bart Cologne. But I was going to say, yeah, if Cologne comes back, then, <laughs> then I want to see him hit. <laughs> that's about it though. Uh, uh, CC Sabathia was a great hitter back in the day when he, when he was from Milwaukee in that small little stint when he played for the Brewers for like two months. Who's that? Uh, Sorry, I missed it. So remember Sabathia was in the Brewers? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but like, what I want to see this year, and what I think is going to be really interesting, is if some teams that have, quote-unquote, good-hitting pitchers decide to use that pitcher as their DH. Like, are the Giants going to roll out Madison Bumgarner <laughs> as their DH on days he pitches? Like, I think they might, and I think that could, could potentially, um, you know, create some edge because as good of a hitting pitcher as Bumgarner is, he's not as good as even, like, Jeff Mathis at actual hitting. You know Bumgarner's going to lobby, though, and say, you gotta, you got to let me hit. Like, and he's not yeah, – he, he seems like an ornery kind of guy that doesn't accept no. <laughs> I don't know. Just sort of, he, he seems a little uh, – I don't know. Just I, – I, is ornery? Ornery, I think, works as far as Bumgarner. I don't know. I've never met the guy, but he doesn't seem like the – somebody just, like, is, like, laid back. No, uh, he wants to hit. They, they've hit him as the DH in AL parks, I think, sometimes. <laughs> like, it's just uh, – it's a bad decision. And actually, he's with the Diamondbacks now. I said Giants. But, like, that's going to be something he's going to want to do. Lorenzen on Cincinnati, it's another guy that can hit. Uh, yeah. But I, I he's actually been converted into like a semi-real hitter. Um, like he's, he actually starts games as a hitter for them on occasion. Yeah. Um, what, do you have anybody as far as coming to the season, like, I don't know, ADP or just DFS or guys you expect to have a, a bigger year than expected or guys you expect to kind of sort of fall back? Do you have a list off the top of your head? Am I catching you off guard in this one? I mean, Tatis is going to fall back. We have to, we have to expect. He had a bad of over 400 last year. Like that's, you know, by the stack cast metrics, by everything, he's, you know, not as good as that. Um, a few guys at the bat X um, has kind of uh, identified as potentially underrated guys based on stack cast data. It really likes what uh, what Yandy Diaz did last year. It really likes what Abisail Garcia did. 
Um, it thinks Andrew Benintendi is a lot better than he's performed so far. Um, Brandon Lau is a guy that, that it likes. Um, it's going to be interesting this year to see, I think, um, how the two projection systems compare and which guys wind up getting that extra boost because of the stat cast stuff. Um, I think it's, uh, I think we're going to see a lot of really interesting uh, names pop up. Why are lefty masters not real? <laughs> lefty masters are not real because, because the math says they're not real is the, <laughs> is the most simple answer. But basically when you run the math, um, and it's not just me, it's every intelligent sabermetrician who has run the math has come <laughs> to the same conclusion that it takes a long time for platoon splits to have any sort of value. For a right-handed hitter, in order to get to the point where his platoon split tells you just as much about who he is as just assuming he's league average, it takes 10 years. It takes 10 years for a right-handed batter's platoon split to quote-unquote stabilize. Um, and that's just an insane amount of time. And so we can just never, we can just never assume that somebody is as good as their actual versus left-handed pitcher numbers because there's so much noise in it. And you look back and, and I've been saying this for, for years now. And every year people are like, well, what about this guy? His numbers against lefties are so good. He's gotta be a lefty masher. And we've seen so many of these guys now stop being lefty mashers because the sample size are so small. Like, Early on in my DFS career, everyone's like, you got to play Jordy Mercer against lefties, man. Jordy Mercer is like <laughs> such a lefty masher. And then he stopped hitting lefties. Um, people said it, you know, last year, I guess two years ago with Wilmer Flores. Last year, Wilmer Flores stopped hitting lefties. James McCann was like the poster boy who was yeah. like so good. And guess what? James McCann stopped hitting lefties so well. Like there's been so many of these guys where the math says you should expect them to stop hitting lefties in the future. And they stop hitting lefties in the future, and people still believe this is a thing somehow. I won't stand for you besmirching the good name that is Jordy Mercer, but point made. Uh, <laughs> why do you hate? Why do you hate Derek Jeter? He's the greatest baseball player of all time. Is that not true? Uh, not even remotely true. He's, he's not even the best shortstop all time. He's not even top ten shortstop all time. Like he's he's a he's a he's a mid tier Hall of Famer who everyone was outraged that he didn't get every single possible vote for the Hall of Fame, which was just a very, very silly thing for people to think because he played in New York. He played in New York. He has a bunch of rings or whatever. And, and he was the biggest baseball name on the planet for a long time. But you look at who he was as a player and he was a good player, but not an outstanding player. And part of it is that a lot of his value was in things that analytics have told us aren't as valuable. Like he had a great batting average, but he wasn't a big power hitter. Um, and he had this reputation as this amazing defensive player. And Derek Jeter is quite possibly the worst defensive shortstop of all time. And I'm, that's not an exaggeration. That's, that's, that's real. Like Derek Jeter is a very, very bad defensive shortstop. He had pretty good hands and he had absolutely atrocious range. So what about that jump make, throw? You never you ever see his jump throw? I've seen the jump throw. I've seen him run behind home plate. Like I've seen, <laughs> I've seen it all. Um, the but, intangibles, Cardi. You can't quantify that. You can quantify defense, and every sing, by every single <laughs> relevant defensive measure, Derek Jeter was bad. And Derek Jeter was bad defensively, even though he looked good to to the casual fan. Because he'd make those jump throws, he'd make those flashy plays, he'd dive for a ball, um, 
but he'd be diving for balls that a normal shortstop would just get to and mm -hmm. just make it look normal. But Derek Jeter's range was so terrible, he'd make these easy plays look really hard and complicated. And if he didn't wind up making the play, he'd dive and then he wouldn't make the throw to first or whatever. It's like, well, it was a really hard play, like whatever. It was still a great dive. But like, no, like other shortstops would have just made the play because they could get to the ball in the first place and make an easy throw. And, and Derek Jeter wasn't able to do that. I'm so with you on this take, by the way, if you can't tell my sarcasm playing along here. Uh, who would he be if he wasn't like, if he wasn't a Yankee forever, like if he was uh, stuck, he could have been like Paul Molitor or something. Maybe that's insulting to Paul Molitor. I haven't worked out the numbers, but like, I'm just trying to think like, who would he be in history if he wasn't a Yankee and if he was maybe playing for the Kansas City Royals his entire life or something like that. Just trying to think if there's a comp for, for Jeter and, you know, great for him. And he was, uh, you know, the, the, the face of a great franchise for so many years that won so many titles, but uh, the numbers. He's like, like Barry Larkin. That, that's, that's probably like, like a good comp for Derek Jeter. Like, like Barry Larkin. He's like good. You know, he's a Hall of Famer, but no one's talking about Barry Larkin as the greatest shortstop of all time, or the, greatest, the greatest player of all time, or like a surefire, you know, unanimous Hall of Famer. Like that's absurd. He also traded uh, Zach Gowan for Jazz Chisholm. What, what, I mean, come on, he's, that, that's a mistake, right? We talked, <laughs> as a former I mean, that, that, that was the a, last straw. <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was not a very, not a very good trade. I don't think. I don't understand. He wanted a, a shortstop pet project, I think, which is that that's what jazz is. But uh, I think Zach Gallon's good. Does the bat like uh, Zach Gallon? Um, I haven't looked. Um, I okay. think it does. Gallon's a guy who, and, and once I come up with like the bat X for, um, for pitchers, which it's only for hitters right now. He's a guy who I think the the stuff is is, is pretty good on. So, uh, you know, I'll be curious to see what happens there. I saw there's a, a rant on this. It was a Chris Russo, the Mad Dog, talking about uh, Bryce Harper, and a lot of people agree. Everybody oh, says like Bryce Harper sucks, and it's like because his batting average is like 230 or whatever it was last year. Uh, why does Bryce Harper not suck? Bryce Harper does not suck because he's good at baseball. No, Bryce Harper does not suck because he's great at baseball. He's freaking elite at baseball. Bryce Harper is so good. But he does things that people don't value, and the things that they do value, he doesn't do well enough. Like, he doesn't have a very good batting average most years. People love their batting average, but it doesn't matter if he has a good batting average because he walks 15% of the time, and his OBP is outstanding because he has great power. Um, but he doesn't get enough RBIs, which he played for a pretty crappy Nationals team for a few years. RBIs are super random anyway. And he's had some injury issues, so the raw RBI totals aren't going to be super high, you know, if he's only playing 110 games, 130 games. Um, but if you look at him on a per-plate appearance basis, Bryce Harper has always been either great or outstanding every single year of his career except for, like, one. And uh, people just don't want to believe that, you know. Well, you see how his biggest contract is, though? He's got it home on every single time to justify that. Yeah, and people are like, oh, well, his contract, he doesn't deserve the contract. Like, yeah, maybe they overpaid a little bit, but that's what sure. you have to do for every single, you know, elite free agent. Manny Machado was overpaid for, and, and people last year were really upset when I said that Harper was a better player than Machado, and they, uh, they got real quiet when, when Machado struggled and Harper was, was easily better last year. Why, why do you hate Aaron Rodgers? Because Aaron Rodgers is not a very good quarterback anymore. <laughs> so he's he was not, once good he's no longer any any good anymore yeah, Aaron Rodgers used to be elite Aaron Rodgers used to be one of the best quarterbacks in football you know surefire hall of famer he was fantastic nothing I have nothing bad to say about Aaron Rodgers's career as a quarterback 
But in terms of who he is as a quarterback right now in 2020, he's probably not in the top half of the league. Aaron Rodgers is like a top maybe 20 quarterback. I don't think he's a top 15 quarterback. Um, and that's what the numbers say. And it's what the freaking eye tests say. Like I remember <laughs> one, one game late last year, I've been talking for two years about how overrated Aaron Rodgers was, how he wasn't that good anymore, how the numbers say he's not that good anymore. And then the Blitz really liked him one week. He was going into Detroit because the Blitz loves domes. He was going into Detroit. It was like a really good matchup. And it's like, all right, this is the week I can, I can stomach playing Aaron Rodgers. So I roster Aaron Rodgers and I like, I watched the game and I'm like, oh my God, like <laughs> how do people argue that Aaron Rodgers is still good when the numbers say he's bad. And when watching him, he clearly looks bad. He's overthrown receivers, he's underthrown receivers. He's like, like he just, he looked terrible. And that probably isn't representative of every game last year, but there is very clearly a decline for Aaron Rodgers. And people will point out certain good throws he makes. And it's like, well, yeah, of course he's going to make good throws because he was once an elite quarterback. He's capable of making those good throws still, but he's aging. He's had some injuries. You know, he's not as good anymore. And he's making a lot more bad throws. And people don't, don't recognize that uh, there's kind of two halves of that coin. I'm just curious how we have we figured out how to quantify like how good his receivers may or may not be. I know sometimes Adams was hurt as well too, and it's a bunch of dudes that basically we've never really heard of. And I know they didn't invest in receivers again this upcoming draft. And you know, how do you is it the chicken and the egg? Like, how do you determine are the receivers good? Well, are they catching balls? Are they coming uh, from quarterbacks that aren't very good? Is this something we've sort of figured out, or it's still a work in progress to know if it's because of receivers are bad, or how much does that factor in? Yeah, it's certainly a work in progress. Like nothing happens on a football field in isolation the way it kind of does with baseball. Um, and Aaron Rodgers obviously is not working with with the best set of wide receivers and tight ends and whatever. Um, and so I think people are, are a lot more willing to give him a pass because of that. They're like, well, he used to be really good and now his receivers just aren't good. So of course his numbers are going to be worse. Um, but and again, I certainly don't have the end-all be-all answer here, but that is something that when I built the Blitz, I knew I needed to address. So I do have some mechanisms in place to try to identify, you know, the underlying talent of the wide receiver, the underlying talent of the quarterback, independent of each other. And yeah, his receivers aren't great, but even once you account for his receivers not being great, his numbers are still not good. They're just not. Let's talk some of your favorites. Uh, favorite athlete maybe today or favorite athlete growing up? Uh, I was a Mets fan, so I love Mike Piazza. He was my favorite player growing up. Did you miss you? You were you were uh, too too late for the '86 Mets, I would assume, or you were like really really young. I would imagine. Yeah, I was born in '87, uh, so I just just missed the '86 Mets. Um, Piazza though, Piazza's one, and and I I mean I'm a Mets fan, so like whatever. I'm probably like a little bit of a homer with it, but he's the one that people should have been egregious about his Hall of Fame treatment because like like he's the best catcher of all time. Like he's the best catcher of all time. And he didn't make it in until like the third ballot or something, or, or I don't know what it, yeah. Was he the first think, ballot Hall of Famer? Uh, I don't, he might I don't, I don't follow these things. It feels like he would be though. That, that, that would surprise he, me if he's not. I'm certainly not unanimous. I, I guess nobody's unanimous, but uh, yeah. Was Rivera unanimous or maybe one guy didn't, but I, I, people get so upset about the Hall of Fame and it's just like, yeah, I don't yeah. Piazza got in on his fourth try with 83% of the vote, which is okay. just absurd for the best catcher of all time. And I think part of it was because like people thought he might've done steroids because of the back knee or like whatever. Um, 
but like Piazza was was such a fantastic hitter and his defense is so much better than people thought it was because he was so bad at throwing out base runners everyone's always like oh Mike Piazza's terrible defensive catcher but uh throwing out base runners like has such a minimal impact on run scoring it really doesn't even matter but Piazza was was a, a really good pitch frame so when you you factor in that he was an above average defensive catcher and the best offensive catcher he was the best catcher of all time and he got in on his fourth try and he also played in new york but people are just aggrieved about Derek jeter when mike piazza like <laughs> mike piazza's a mike piazza's a better baseball player than Derek jeter was there it is former marlin mike piazza by the way for like a week <laughs> so, yeah. yeah remember that he was a marlin for literally about a week they traded for him and, and moved him forward uh, and also i'm sure you know the story of piazza was uh, drafted as a, as a, a, a favor, t- time of the sort of like a family friend. I guess Mike Piazza's dad was a family friend, and he was picked like in the 53rd round or something ridiculous like that, just because, yeah, yeah sure, I guess I'll pick your kid in the 50th round <laughs> with this Piazza guy. Why not? By that time, I'm assuming you're just throwing darts, and you, you know this better than me, I'm sure, but uh, I would imagine there's not a lot of Hall of Famers that have been picked uh, beyond, I don't know, the 40th round or the 50th round in the, uh, the draft. Yeah, not a lot of them. Piazza's definitely one of the more prominent cases. Uh, let's, your, your Jersey guy, Bruce or Bon Jovi or off the board. Oh, it's Bruce for sure. Um, it, it's Bruce for sure. Bon Jovi has like five good songs. You can maybe get to 10 if you stretch a little bit and they're very good songs. Um, but yeah, this is, this is a common argument sometimes around here. Um, but it's clearly Bruce. Bruce has, has 50 songs that are better than Bon Jovi's, you know, you know, outside of like his top three songs, Bruce has like 50 songs that are better than like his fourth best song. Have you seen either or or both in concert? Um, Never seen Bon Jovi. I've seen Bruce um, several times, uh, more when I was younger. um, But uh, I haven't seen him in in quite a while. I'd actually like to. But yeah, Bruce concerts are awesome. What is the stereotype about Jersey that's correct? And what is the one that's incorrect? Um, I guess the stereotype that's... uh, I mean, in... hmm. <laughs> or anyone just wanted to think that's wanted. correct is that we can be sometimes I guess a little loud or opinionated. Obviously, I get into fights on Twitter all the time, so maybe that's a Jersey <laughs> thing that I'm just now realizing. I guess is a Jersey thing that I didn't think I fed into that stereotype, but I do. Um, and then incorrect is that like we're all like you know uh, either like fist pumping Guidos like who you know like the like the Jersey Shore show. Jim Tan Laundry. They're all from New York. Yeah, and they just come down for the summer and whatever. Like, Jersey's actually, like, a very nice place. And a lot of times when you, you fly into, like, Newark, it's, like, you know, smoggy and it's, like, you know, dirty looking and, like, whatever. And that's what people kind of see in Jersey. But, like, when you go down to the shore or, like, down south a little bit, like, it's really nice. It's, like, a lot of green. It's, like, you know, the ocean. It's, uh, it's a very different vibe than I think a lot of people think of Jersey with. A random question I like to ask sometimes, like your favorite wrestler back in the day. You actually, I think, I'm pretty sure I know your answer because this wrestler went to your birthday party? Yeah, Bam Bam Bigelow. Um, Bam Bam Bigelow was, uh, was my dad's like best friend growing up. Um, so uh, uh, when I was, you know, I turned whatever, like 10 years old or whatever, and I was like super into wrestling. Um, he, he, you know, he wound up coming to my birthday party. Um, he helped me out with like this report I did in fourth grade. Um, you know, he... Uh, he invited me to a couple of the, like he was an ECW at the time. He was like ECW champ to, uh, to a couple of those. Wild ECW. ECW is not like the ECW arena or where, where were they? Yeah. I guess they were in New Jersey as well too, right? Philadelphia and New York. They, they really, uh, they, they took shows. Uh, yeah. When you tell me. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I went to a few of the shows. I mean, I don't know where else they did them, did them, but I went to a few um, in New Jersey, you know, he'd, you know, take me backstage. He'd introduce me to all the guys, you know, as a kid, I get like my picture with them. I get autographs. Um, you know, I got to see, you know, them practicing for, for the pay-per-views and stuff like that. So that was, that was really cool. Yeah. And then he came and- to my birthday party, obviously, which all my friends were like thrilled with when, when Bam and Bigelow shows up and he starts putting kids in headlocks and like, you know, <laughs> Probably the nicest guy in the world, but like he's possibly a scary looking dude for like a nine year old or a 10 year old. Oh, I mean, he's a super scary looking dude. He's huge. He's got the tattoos on his head, you know, but uh, I mean, he was super nice. Yeah. Uh, your, your favorite uh, at the game, like sporting event, it could be any sport, any whatever, any arena, your favorite moment you've witnessed live. Has anything come to, come to your, your head? Hmm. Or just your favorite park to visit. I don't know. Did you, did you branch out and like uh, hit up a hockey game and things like that? Or is that not for you? I don't go to a lot of live sports. I've never been to a hockey game. The coolest one was probably just, I mean, I just like seeing the history of things. So like the first time I went to Fenway park was really cool. It was part of a uh, DFS boot camp, um, Al Smizzle's thing. And, you know, you know, I gave a presentation and we all went to, um, we all went to, we sat up in a luxury box in Fenway, you know, with like the view of the, the monster and everything. And that was like, that was really cool. Yeah, that, that's a cool ballpark as well. Uh, I did one of those. Unfortunately, it was in Vegas, so there's no like uh, venture out to, to visit the game. But yeah, that was good times for sure. That's taking me back as well. Um, so a- Anchorman's the worst movie. What's the best movie? Uh, give me a hot take as far as maybe a movie that you like that other people don't like. Uh, Speed Racer. <laughs> what? With Emil Hirsch? Is that correct? Yeah, <laughs> the- <laughs> I feel like we've gone over this before, but like that's what that's one movie that I always was very upset with the critics about for panning, um, because it's so good. Like everyone hated it, but it's just like such a good movie. Like it plays into the absurdity of it. Like it just it does everything so well, um, and I love that movie. But I um, yeah. quick I mean, search I like by the way, Rotten Tomatoes. Like- 40%, 40% for speed racer, according to the critics, 60% for the audience for what it's worth. So uh, there you go. A little higher score oh, than the audience. The audience is lower than that too. Okay. I don't think I saw it. You're saying I should go see speed racer. You should go see speed racer. All right. Apparently it's available on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you gave your Oscar movies, uh, your rundown, which I actually, for the most part, I think it's correct. It's pretty solid. Uh, Par- Parasite was your favorite movie according was that your favorite movie of the year or you just you just like to rank the actual movies that are ranked for uh, rookie, for Oscar of the year for, for yeah that, that was my favorite movie of the year um, it was either that or Jojo Rabbit I thought it was really close between them like every, Parasite was the one that was actually had a chance to win that everyone talked about but uh, I thought they were both like outstanding yeah trying to convince my idiot friends that like it's it's okay you can read it's fine it's not it's like because there's subtitles in Parasite and like it's a yeah. great movie just trust me it's just really good and Oh, I don't want to read because God forbid you read while watching something, but uh, especially, if especially if you know it's going to be really good. Like you can't put in like that little bit of effort to like do something that you know is going to be really good and enjoyable and like it just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, the other part of that is that a lot of people are now like not going to movies and they're watching Netflix or they're watching Hulu and things like that. And everybody multitasks. Like you're not watching the screen the whole time. You're You're on the internet playing on Twitter or playing some game on your phone or something like that. I think that kind of factors in and you know, there's some movies that are great for that, that you don't necessarily have to pay attention. But for Parasite. Yeah, yeah. Parasite, you, you have to you have to give it your full attention. You can't be multitasking or anything like that. And so maybe that's why some people are against it. Um, I'm, yeah. Know. I'm shocked at the Jojo Rabbit, like I, the concept I was aware of, like going into the movie. And I'm like, this, I'm like, this isn't going to be really good or really terrible. I don't know how this is going to work. 
But uh, yeah, it, it, it was executed really well. And I was surprised. I liked it much more than I expected. It was, I mean, I thought it was hysterical. Like I thought just the comedy and it was, was like, it was the, the reverse Anchorman in terms of comedy, which is to say <laughs> that it was very funny. Um, but like it had a great message. It had hard. It, it, it was just so I thought it was a really good year for movies. I'm kind of looking at your rankings right now. 1917, you had third. and Yeah, that, that was obviously great. Uh, here's my thing, my thought on 1917. I feel like that's a movie you had to see in the theaters. Uh, yes, it's probably definitely. not nearly as good on Netflix or on your, your home 55-inch TV or whatever it may be. Like, it's just incredible. It's all basically one shot. Like, Obviously, they figured out a way to do it, make it look like that. But uh, a war movie, I, like, for me, the story wasn't great. It was fine. Yeah. It was pretty simple. But it was the presentation, like the like the cinematography was phenomenal. Right, that that's the main thing. Like, if it was filmed differently, it probably wouldn't have been anything special. Like, the story was okay, but it was the cinematography, it was the editing, it was like everything, um, you know, everything beyond the story that goes into it was just like top notch. Uh, marriage story was great. Ford versus Ferrari. I don't care about cars at all, but I enjoyed that as well. Then yeah, Joker six. That's where I take umbrage, Cardi. Do you not like Joker? It's just like a stack field. More of a stacked field kind of thing. Like, I didn't dislike Joker, but I didn't think it was, like, you know, the greatest movie I'd ever seen in my entire life. Like, I, I love Batman. Like, I love uh, comic book type stuff. Um, but, like, in terms of, like, I don't know, we're talking about, like, Oscar movies or, like, the very best movies of the year. I didn't think it was on the level of Parasite. I didn't think it was on the level of 1917 or on the level of Jojo Rabbit or anything like that. Like, I thought it was just a good movie. What's the best Batman movie? Uh, I mean, it's the one everyone I'm sure would say. It's The Dark Knight. You know, it's the second Nolan one. But. Yeah. And that, that's my answer as well, too. And yet, you have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood kind of buried as well, too. It's seventh amongst the nine nominees. And I'm a Tarantino guy. I loved it, but I don't think it's his best movie. But it's not really fair to compare him to, like, his other brilliant stuff. That's just, like, I probably wouldn't put it in his top five all time just because yeah, other movies it. are great. But, uh Yeah. And the Irishman, you didn't like. A lot of people didn't like the Irishman. Yeah, I thought the Irishman was. Uh, I thought it was kind of blah. I thought it kind of dragged. I thought it was way too long. If they did it as a miniseries, it probably would have been pretty cool. But in, as a four-hour movie, I was like, you know, there wasn't a whole lot happening. Like there was no traditional. Like in a, in a story, normally you have, you know, uh, I forget. It's been so long since I've taken an English class. But like you have the, you know, the, the, the exposition in the beginning. You have the rising action. You have the climax. You have the falling action. There really was no real climax. There was no real rising action. It was kind of just like one kind of blob. Like it wasn't, I don't know. That kind of speaks to the, the same thing I was saying before. Uh, the Irishman on Netflix, most after most people watched it and people weren't going to give it just four hours of straight 100% concentration. They were playing on their phone. They were doing things. I feel like that's, I think that hurt the perception of the Irishman. Just my thought. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I never do that, especially with Oscar movies. Like I always want to watch them and, and see all the different, you know, technical aspects of it and, and everything else. And so I watched it straight through. Um, I just wasn't, I just wasn't that impressed by it. I feel like if it wasn't Scorsese who did it, yeah, maybe it wouldn't have been uh, as, I don't know, as popular. Speed Racer, you're just saying deserves more credit. You weren't saying that's your favorite movie of all time, were you? Oh, no. It's just a movie that I think is super underrated. Okay, but like your top favorite movie, like what's in the family food board? What kind of comes to your head? Um, I mean, obviously, you know, like classics like Casablanca, like uh, Good Will Hunting is, is great. Um, 
in the past few years, I think Whiplash is probably my favorite movie um, because Great I just movie. think, yeah, with, uh, with J.K. Simmons and Miles Teller, like, I just think it's like such a cool story and like a, such an interesting way of looking at like what it takes to be truly great at something. And like, is there a line between like how hard you should push someone or push yourself to be truly great? Is there like a line where it's just like not okay? You know, what kind of passion and dedication do you have to put into something to really become amazing at it? Like, I just thought the movie itself and the concept and the story and, and obviously the acting from, from Simmons was fantastic. I just thought it was a really, a really interesting movie and a really good one. You got any hot takes as far as TV? Is it, what, what have you been binging on? What have you been liking? What have you been liking not so much? Um, I haven't got to watch Tiger King yet. There, there's a lot of TV I haven't gotten to watch. You'd think in quarantine, like I, you know, everyone's like watching Netflix and catching up on stuff. I haven't really had as much of a chance to do that because I've been trying, I've been working, you know, I've been working on upgrades and getting stuff done. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, I thought for sure you'd have a Tiger King take for me. I don't. I didn't get a chance to see it. <laughs> it's I a weird thing to know. recommend. I don't really recommend it, but I think like it's worth, you know, it's kind of worth seeing, but it's also, I don't know, it's probably a little bit long and you know, you don't feel great watching it necessarily. It's a, uh, yeah, it's, I give like a half-hearted recommendation on it. Yeah. I just started watching Atlanta, um, Donald Glover show, which uh, FX, only a couple yeah. episodes in. That's really good so far. Yeah, that's one of them that's on the list. Uh, for some reason, I don't have FX or I, I think Hulu is FX. If it, I got to get Hulu to get all the old FX stuff, but uh, it's oh, on the list um, for sure. Cobra Kai, Cobra Kai, that's my hot take. Cobra Kai is fantastic. Have you heard of this or seen it? I'm aware of it, and I thought it's on like YouTube Plus or something or whatever their uh, yeah, format it was is. It's on YouTube for the first two seasons, and now uh, Hulu and Netflix are, I think, bidding on season three, um, and it's so good. It's like it's the old Karate Kid movies um, with, you know, Ralph Macchio and, and Mr. Miyagi and like all that. Um, and obviously Mr. Miyagi's not in it because he passed away, but it's, yeah. uh, it's them as adults told from the perspective of, of, I guess, like the quote unquote, like bad guy in the first movie, you know, Johnny Lawrence, like the guy who, who Ralph Macchio beats in the final tournament at the end of Karate Kid. Told from, from his perspective with like, you know, they're, they're running their own dojos. It's, it's just great. It's so good. Now, is it good or is it just like it feeds nostalgia or it's actually good? It's actually good also. I mean, obviously it feeds nostalgia, but it's actually good. All right. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it. I'm aware of it. I had a friend of mine tell me it's good, but that was sort of my thought. I'm like, it's not really good. You just like the fact that it reminds you of like happier times when you were like eight or something. I don't know. No, it is. It's really well done. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I did actually did see a note. I think it just came across like today or yesterday that season three will be on Netflix. And I guess they'll go back and pick up season one and season two and Presumably, great. yeah. We'll put that on the list as well, too. Um, you have some hot takes as far as beverages. Uh, at least I think it's a hot take. Where I think you're being snarky. What's the difference between a White Claw and a Zima? <laughs> is, that, is the White Claw the modern-day Zima? I mean, apparently. Like, I'm, I, I drink – I don't know. I try to – I drink, like, liquor. I drink, like, real alcohol. And I'm not, like, a big White Claw guy, which I guess is, like, super popular now. Yeah. So, like, I don't – but, like, everyone always – makes fun of like Zima and like a lot of times people look at me and they're like oh Cardi definitely doesn't drink he's just like you know a little wuss he probably drinks Zima or drinks like whatever um but then <laughs> at the same time they're they're talking about how great White Claw is so like I was just like okay like what is the difference because they seem basically like the same thing 
White Claw doesn't seem like a macho drink. Like, yeah, not that like I don't care if it's either good or it's not. I don't care if it's macho or not. I'll yeah, drink that's a, exactly like I'll drink a fruity cocktail the same as I'll drink a scotch meat. Like if, if it tastes good, I'm gonna drink it. And I think White Claw's okay, but like uh, I I don't get the the huge sensation of it. Yeah, I remember you were uh, we we uh, we were talking at uh, Brit's wedding in Disney in Epcot. You were regaling me of stories of drinking in. Uh, God, where were you? you went on vacation in Eastern Europe or something like that, didn't you? Where did you go? Yeah, so I went to a, a traditional wedding in Slovakia, and oh man, they they like to drink there. They're you know <laughs> when you, I guess a lot of people don't people don't know a lot about Slovakia, but the closest like if you think of like how Russians drink, where they just like pound shots of vodka, they have their own like specific liquors that they drink there. Slivovitz is like the one that we drank a lot of, and. Um, you know, the people I was with, they're like, this tastes like gasoline. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, it's delicious. And, you know, they, they just pound the shots. Like, as soon as the wedding, uh, the wedding part of the wedding was over, like, we leave the church. They're outside the church pouring everyone shots of, of sleeve of this. Like, and we're taking shots. Like, and that's just kind of how the culture is there. And, uh, yeah, that was fun. <laughs> Went in Rome, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Tied it back to Anchorman. There you go. <laughs> I wasn't sure if... Uh... <laughs> I actually use that correctly, I believe. Is that like, is that, uh, is there any sort of like distinct cultural differences? I, I'm always fascinated by culture differences and traveling and things like that. Like, is there something that you sort of picked up on, maybe not in Slovakia or anywhere you've been, that just like, you're just like, wow, it's sort of weird that they do this instead of this? Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of things. Like, obviously, you go over there, um, you have to pay for public restrooms usually, um, which, okay. is, which is interesting. Like, you'd never think of that in America, but, um, so you have to do that. Um, the thing I like the most though over there is things are are more laid back generally. Like you go out to to dinner in America, and you know you you get your table. The waitress comes right away. They serve you your food. They try to get you out the door to turn it over to get a new table because they're working for tips. Obviously, over there they're not really working for tips in a lot of countries, and uh, and so dinner is like more of a more of a leisurely thing. It's like more of an event. Like you know you sit there you know, the waitress might or waiter might not come over for, you know, 20 minutes or 30 minutes, um, you know, or you just call them over when you're ready. Um, and, you know, the, the food might come out slower. Um, you know, after, after you eat, you might sit for a while. You don't get your check right away and leave. You sit, you have some drinks, maybe you have dessert in an hour. Like it's very leisurely. It's like a very nice way of living. I, I loved it. While I was How's the food in Slovakia? Oh, the food in Slovakia was actually really good. Um, but, uh, yeah, I because uh, at the the rehearsal dinner they they asked everyone what they wanted to eat. So I'm like, well, what do I eat in Slovakia? So like I Google <laughs> it. I'm like, what what do Slovakians eat? So like I picked the national dish. I don't remember what it was called, but like whatever the national dish of Slovakia was, I got it and it was delicious. Like it was so good. But like everyone was like impressed that I ate it. They're like, oh, like Americans never like eat this. They say it tastes like you know whatever whatever. And I'm just like, no, like it's delicious. When I go somewhere, I want to you know, see what the culture's all about. I want to see what you guys do. I want to eat your food. And, and so, yeah, that, that was really nice. This is sort of random. I was curious. We were talking about before as far as like StatCast stuff and how it wasn't available back in the day. And uh, this is something I had a conversation with somebody else about it. And Ichiro, like, you know, Ichiro is known for like absolutely raking during batting practice. Like yeah. he can bang out a bunch of homers. How do you think Ichiro would have done if he like sort of applied the, you know, uh, let, let's try to hit as many fly balls as possible. How do you think that would have changed and, and altered his career? It's tough to say because even without power, like his career was really good. Um, but it's tough to know from batting average, like how, 
how much in-game power he would actually have, how much he'd have to change his swing, like whether he'd be able to do that, you know, on, on real major league pitches, not just like batting average or batting practice fastballs on, you know, 100 mile an hour fastballs, on curveballs, on stuff like that. Um, and I think there's probably a reason he didn't hit that way. So it's, it's tough to say, you know, in, in scout school, they, they kind of warn you, like, don't yeah. put too much weight into batting practice because, you know, it's not necessarily the best indicator of what a player is going to do in a game or what a player is able to do in a game. Yeah, like the same sort of thought process of like if Wade Boggs or Tony Gwynn or Pete Rose was playing today, like how much different would their game be or would it be the same? Like it's hard to say. It's all just sort of guessing, but it's a sort of um, – it's a curious thought I had. I'm like, I wonder what they would look like in 2020. Yeah. Uh, let's get you out of here on this one, Cardi. I appreciate your time. Uh, I, I asked Grant. You know, Grant, we, we were talking before about uh, Twitter trolls, and Grant every once in a while likes to troll you or have some fun, Grant Nefer. <laughs> and I said – I go, hey, I'm talking to Cardi later on today. you have any questions for him? And I had to, like, grab it out of him. He's like, no. He's like, I want to, he's like mostly, I'm just being a jerk, and I want to be nice more or less. He's like, I don't want to be mean. <laughs> but I got one out of him, and he, and he said um, – can is a possible could a running back average a touchdown a game? Is that something that's sustainable? <laughs> yeah, this goes back to uh, Todd Gurley a couple a couple years ago, where Gurley was like the greatest player on the planet for like the first half of the season, and I was like, Gurley's going to regress because he can't keep doing this, and then Gurley regressed. Um, the same thing happened with with McCaffrey last year. I think like people thought he was going to keep getting like thirty five DraftKings points a game, and it's like, no, that's probably too much. Um, yeah, running back can average a touchdown per game, um, but, uh, you know, not a lot of them are going to do it, and you shouldn't be expecting a whole lot more than that most of the time. But if it does happen, you can guarantee Grant's going to retweet you saying it's not going to happen, yeah. and he's going to have a lot of fun on that Twitter machine. Yeah, it was annoying, too, because, like, I misspoke. Like, the Blitz was projecting, really, for, like, a touchdown and a quarter per game, and I just said, like, oh, he's not going to keep averaging. I think I might even said, like, two touchdowns a game or – it was like a very like nitpicky thing. So Grant, I don't like you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to end the show. I'm good with that. Uh, there you go. Uh, Cardi, I much appreciate your time. Tell the people where they can find you uh, all different places around the interwebs. So don't tell them about the bat, tell them about the blitz, all that good stuff. Yeah. I mean, right now, not a lot going on, but you can find me on Twitter at Derek Cardi. You can find um, the bat and the new bat X, obviously for DFS here at Roto Grinders. Um, while we're waiting for baseball to start, you can find season-long stuff for the Bat and the Bat X at Fangraphs, at EV Analytics. Um, so, yeah, check that out. Play with it. There's a lot of cool uh, new tools that I put out using StatCast data and whatnot that will, uh, will help us evaluate players both before the season and, and once it finally hopefully starts. Awesome. Much appreciate your time. He was Derek Cardi. I was Dean. This was the Morning Grind. We're out of here. Holler.